You're listening to the Photographer's Story Podcast. I'm your host, Hark Najjar, and joining me is international photography business coach, Bernie Griffiths, as my co-host. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of uh, Photographer's Story Podcast. We're joined today by uh, Neil Farron and my uh, good buddy, uh, Bernie Griffiths, out in Australia. How are you doing, Bernie? How are you, Hawk? You're still locked down uh, in Canada there. Uh, we're oh, we're yeah. good in Aussie land, but Canada's not so good, eh? I don't think they're going to let us out anytime soon. So, uh, so we'll, we'll just stay in our hole and uh, keep keep doing these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, and it's just the way it is, you know. We've had uh, the pandemic uh, for a year and a, nearly a year and a half. But uh, hey, we'll get there. It's just a matter of time. And I'm happy to invite our guest today to the podcast, uh, Neil Farron. And Neil, we've been tracking down in New Zealand and we've had a hard time getting to him because he's been running around the countryside, as they say, photographing the America's Cup. How are you, Neil? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you, Bernie. I'm very Hi. well indeed, thank you. Yes, and again, you know, as mentioned, apologies. It's, um, it's been a, a fraught event to cover, to say the least. And, uh, but uh, uh, one of the most exciting that I have ever covered. And um, yeah, fascinating event. But, uh, you know, you're in the lap of the gods, literally, because... You know, if the wind doesn't blow, then there's no racing. We, we've been bobbing around on Auckland Harbour for numerous days, waiting for the wind to, um, to appear on occasions. And fortunately, this week it did. And even more fortunately for New Zealand, um, you know, a country of only 5 million people um, who always tends to shoot above its weight when, you know, regarding sporting events, um, they won the America's Cup, and, uh, which is the oldest sporting international trophy in the world believe it or not but uh, yeah well a... we we know about that in australia now we did win it you know at one point australia yes uh, yes i i we... so i believe bernie yes i, I know it was a, we... I, I do remember that we yeah, ne- we'll never forget that after 132 years or something of america holding it we exactly took it from those yanks yeah yep Yep. And, and it's staying here at the moment. So it'll be, you know, it won't be going back to the shores of America anytime soon, hopefully. So, uh, yeah, let's see what we can do to keep it in the southern hemisphere. Hey, I've, I've been to Auckland a few times, you know, and I remember the last time I was there, I, we, Wendy and I, my wife, we took a little walk around the harbour and I've never seen so much money sitting on the water in my life. I believe one in five people have a boat in New Zealand. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, it really is. Um, I mean, you know, there is so much wealth. There's so much boat building going on here. There's so much innovation. Again, for a country of only just ticking over five million people, it, it is just phenomenal. Um, I've actually been living in the UK for the last sort of 12 years. I mean, I, I lived here for eight years. Um, and then had to go back uh, to the UK um, for family reasons and, and have recently come back um, to cover the event. And, and it's just, you know, it, it's a, always a wonderful country to come back to. And of course, <clears throat> as we all struggle with, you know, COVID at the moment, uh, to be honest, I couldn't be in a, a better place. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. we've had a couple of minor lockdowns because of single cases in Auckland and compare that to where I've just come from mm. you know we're, we're living what is a relatively normal life over here in New Zealand and very fortunate to be doing so. So, uh, so uh, let's start with the first question uh, Neil and that's when did you first pick up a camera? 
Well, I first picked up a camera, and it is going to be the cliched um, brownie, our, our, our Kodak brownie, um, you know, that uh, basically... Um, that I you know, picked up my first yeah, camera too. Yeah, you know, and I've yep. still got it. I've still got the original <laughs> brownie in, it, in its little brown sort of check case, and uh, my, my parents... Little did they know what they were doing. I think, you know, at a very early age, they, they gave me the brownie. And, um, you know, it, it took 120 film again, you know, which was quite incredible for that time, I suppose. And the quality of the images was relatively good. Yep. Um, but that was the beginning for me. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of um, prompted me into taking some photographs and uh, really was the beginning of um, my interest in photography. So just picking up the brownie, I guess it's not just a matter of just handing you the camera. In those days, the, the processing of the film and buying of the film, it costs money. So what did your parents think about it when you started burning through all the film? <laughs> well, I don't know what I was burning through because, you know, to be perfectly honest, in those days, and I think we all did the same, a roll of film tended to sit in the camera for a year or two because, you know, you would actually only take it away when you went on holiday. And, and holidays in those days were not something that you did every weekend you know so to be perfectly honest that role of film as much as I was encouraged by the camera um you know it, it prompted a, a trip to um Spain uh, to warmer climes to you know really encourage me to take the camera out and and start um going through a few roles and uh that was the encourager. I, I met a photojournalist in in Spain when I was over there staying with a friend and that was the start for me. I began to realize that there could be a profession in photography. And, um, and that was the uh, start and um, the initial inspiration for me as a photographer. So did you actually end up going through some sort of art school or uh, a photography school or just all self-taught? Yeah, no, I, I, I went to um, graphic design school um, after leaving school. And uh, that basically prompted me into the realization that I didn't want to be a graphic designer sitting behind the desk. I was more interested in the photography aspects of the graphic design course um, and soon became fascinated and, and started to leave behind the world of graphics and became ensconced in, in the world of photography. And I think, you know, one of my sort of biggest inspirations was buying my first camera with my grant at college. Um, I mean, we, we got a minimal grant when we were at college in the UK. And, and unfortunately, people don't even get a grant these days. But in those days, we did. And it wasn't a particularly large amount of money. But the difference for me was buying a camera and starving or, you know, eating well and, uh, you know, not being able to create. So I, I decided I was going to invest my meager grant on a Praktika, which... Um, you know, was a German, East German camera, which uh, was a very sturdy camera and came in at a particularly low price in the local camera shops in the UK. So I um, hurriedly went off with my grant in my hand, cashed it in at the bank and went off to the local camera shop and purchased my first professional camera, which was, a, well, professional as far as certainly a, a move above the brownie. And uh, that was the first camera for me. And that was, again, the inspiration, really, because then I began to really ensconce myself in photography and go around taking local scenes in my hometown in England, Leicester, and photographing different characters in the local market. And 
discovering the dark room, which, you know, um, as we know, is something which is making a resurgence these days. Um, it, it's, you know, it's quite phenomenal how many young photographers who basically started in the world of digital are now discovering the old traditional darkroom, which I think is wonderful and loving it too. So you've gone, you got yourself a professional camera. Now you're uh, looking at actually making money. So uh, tell us uh, what was your first, very, very first uh, paid job that you got? Well, my first paid job was when I left college and I was wondering what to do with the rest of my life, as many of us do when we leave college. And we had a photography tutor um, who uh, had a certain passion for uh, Bell's whiskey and um, and was quite a character. Um, and uh, we we used to occasionally go out for a, you know a, a drink. And he said, you know, he said I've I've got some friends who are running a photography business. He said they they've you know um, only just started this business and they may be looking for somebody to you know sort of assist. And he called them and I, I was very fortunate to go along for an interview. I went for an interview and unfortunately failed the interview. And I thought, well, okay, back to the searching again. But I got a phone call about three days later and they had changed their mind. Uh, to this day, I still don't know what changed their mind, but they fortunately changed their mind and they said, well, can you come back in and let's have another chat? And, um, and they took me on for what was a basic wage at that time, but it was not the money that I was obviously, you know, interested in. It was the passion of photography and the opportunity that they were going to give me to, you know, basically start my photography career. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> the first few days were a little fraught, to say the least. Um, they presumed that having come from college, I'd learned everything there was to know about photography and um, unfortunately as we quite often know that's not the case <laughs> in the world of education and there's nothing like being out on the job to learn the profession and my first day they gave me some rolls of film to process which you would imagine would be a fairly simple task first a student straight out of college so they gave me the rolls of film and they sent me into the dark room and I put the rolls of film into the into the old canister as we used to use and unfortunately I didn't put enough developer into the canister so as I was um, you know <laughs> presumably processing all three rolls of film I wasn't I was only processing two well two and a half to be precise so when the film came out and we you know process developed and then fixed and then washed and and they held the film up in horror and it was a, it was a quite an important film it was a film of, of a, a professional uh goalkeeper the england goalkeeper at that particular time peter shilton and unfortunately he hadn't got any he hadn't got any hands in the image due to my non-processing of that part of the film so that didn't go down too well and so they said right we'll we'll you know We'll, we'll send you out on a job. And uh, we, they used to work for real estate companies and, and they, you know, they would go out and take photographs as many photographers do of you know, houses that were coming up for sale. And they said, right, well, we're going to send you out with a camera and uh, we want you to go to this address, please, and photograph this particular house. And so I went along and unfortunately the lens they had given me on the camera was not wide enough to get the house in. And, 
whatever I tried, I couldn't. And I was trying so hard. And I, so I went back to the office and I said, sorry, but I couldn't take a picture of the house because uh, the lens wasn't wide enough. And they said, well, didn't you think to go in the house opposite and knock on the door and say, can I please go into your bedroom and photograph the house? And I said, no, I didn't. I, I, it didn't even cross my mind to do this. And they said, well, lesson one in photography, you know, always look for an opportunity if you can um, and a way out. And so a final piece to this little intro, and this is only on day two now, they said, well, could you clean the windows, please? <laughs> so I was... I, I was left in the in the cloakroom area with uh, a duster and something that we used to call window lean, which is a pink solution in a bottle. And I thought, okay, well, I, I can't go wrong here, can I? So I shook the bottle of window lean. And unfortunately in the cloakroom, the two partners of the company had their best suits for those occasions when they had to go out and shoot somebody important. Well, unfortunately the top of the window lean bottle wasn't, quite secure enough and as I shook the bottle of window lean it went <laughs> up and down their best suits that were hanging in the in the cloakroom so that was the end of that first week that I might be looking for a new job but fortunately for me they persisted so that was the start to my uh, yeah photographic career if you can call it that <laughs> Well, that's quite a good start. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, you still got paid for that very first week uh, after being uh, in those situations. Uh, did you ever shoot any weddings uh, during that time, or were they primarily doing just uh, sports or? Uh, no, no, no. I, I yeah, that, and and photographing weddings, um, I, I did, and um, you know, I uh, you know, I photographed numerous weddings during that time, and and they were the sort of mainstay of photographers then, but nothing like the creative wedding photography of today i mean it was it was literally you know you got the bridegroom bridegroom's parents bride bride's parents and and it was a formulaic system of you know basically lining everybody up and but it was for me one of the best schools of photography because if you can handle a wedding on a bitterly cold winter's day in the uk when all everybody wants to do is to get to the reception and have a beer or two, then you can handle anything. And, uh, you know, and that was quite often the case, you know, it was, it, and, and of course, unfortunately, families don't always get on as we know. So you were then stuck with a situation where somebody might quietly come over to you and say, well, actually the bride doesn't really get on with the groom's family. Can we do something about this? And so it was a lot of man management, which photography is all about. And it taught me so much about handling people in group situations um, and just getting them to smile. You know, you, you have to act the clown and you quite often do, particularly in those sort of situations. The one fortunate part about photography, particularly wedding photography in those days was not everybody did have a camera. And so you were left on your own without people wandering in with iPhones, as is often the case now. But uh, it was a great school of photography for me in the early days. Yeah, it certainly was. And, uh, you know, being a wedding photographer myself for many years and the first wedding I ever photographed was my sister's and it was snowing. 
Um, so I know what it's like, good, good, tra good training ground. And uh, I, I've still got the photographs of the bridesmaids getting out of the cars in their mini skirts and high heels and it's, it's snowing. Um, so that's just the way it was then. Um, Neil, one of the great things about being a photographer, as I mentioned to all of our guests is it enables us or gets us traveling. Um, tell us some of the countries you've been to um, just because you're a photographer, really. Well, I was very fortunate. Um, I, after a few years working for the photographers in the UK, um, I'd look longingly at glamorous magazines, travel magazines, and thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to travel with my work? Um, and as much as I loved the job, I decided it was time for an adventure. And so I, I left the company and headed off to Hong Kong, um, which uh, I hadn't been to before. Um, to be honest, I didn't know anybody. Uh, I, I had a an old Practica uh, camera still with me, but I traded that in for a Pentax and I, I went armed with one Pentax and one lens and believe it or not, the speed graphic, um, you know, which um, sort of allowed me to at least do some studio work if it was required and a Mamiya, um, the old C220 Mamiya. So I had one of each of those and I went armed with those off to Hong Kong. And that was the start of my traveling adventures, really. Um, you know, and also a new life. Uh, that's interesting, Neil, because you got uh, three different formats. 35 mil, 120, and what, a five by four? Yeah, well, well, well got that it was, all. <laughs> well, I had, but it, I had, but in a very basic format. I mean, I, you, you know, I mean, to to be honest, Hong Kong, as you're probably aware, is is a very sort of lavish society, and unfortunately, the only 120 cameras they had heard of in Hong Kong was a Hasselblad, <laughs> and the only four or five camera they had ever heard of was a Cinar. And the only 35 mil camera they'd ever heard of was a Nikon. <laughs> so right. me, me turning up with my sort of, you know, little threesome were basically wasn't a great look. And, and, and it took me a long time to get established, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, you know. So, so even in the back of the day, it was the equipment, uh, what you had, it was still a big thing. I thought it was only a more from modern thing. Uh, and that no, most no, 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 it. no. If, well, it, it was a very big thing in, in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is all about named goods, really, whether it be professional or otherwise. And you were literally deemed not to be a professional photographer if, if you hadn't got a Hasselblad. Uh, it, it, you know, it didn't equate. So, um, you know, and, and latterly, even with my poor old Bowen's light, you know, if you didn't have Broncolor, then you were an outcast, you know, so... Uh, yeah. Um, so that, that was that was the start of my you know professional um, career as an individual photographer in Hong Kong, and again, quite a school, a tough school business-wise as well to come into, but a land of opportunity, and people did give you that opportunity and a wonderful place to be. So how old were you, Neil? And I mean, did it really happen that way? Did you say, I'm, I'm going to earn fame and fortune, I'm taking these three cameras, and I'm going to Hong Kong, and I'm going to become a professional photographer? Was it like that? It was. It, it wow. really was. At the age of 22, I decided right. that, yeah, this was going to be my future. 
I, to be honest, I had a, a return ticket, um, you know, because I thought, well, if, if, all, if all goes, you know, well, then great, I'll stay. And if it doesn't, then at least I've got my return ticket. And, and interestingly, our main competitor back in the UK, um, as I was sort of, you know, leaving, uh, sent me, well, called me and said, look, you know, if you do decide to come back, we've got a job for you. So... It, it, there was a nice opportunity there to come back to, but after a few months in Hong Kong, I decided I needed the money more than I wanted to return back to the UK. And so I cashed in my, <laughs> my return ticket and that enabled me to uh, seek some accommodation. And uh, the accommodation, if you remember seeing some of those old images of flights coming into Hong Kong in the old days where they used to sort of cross over the rooftops almost, mm -hmm you know landing on them I, I was in one of those flats on the top okay. and okay. believe yeah. me sleep was a challenge in those days so uh, but i lived with a chinese family um which was a very different existence most of the the you know western people living over there were highly salaried individuals living in rather uh, luxurious rented accommodation but that wasn't the case for me i was in what was then deemed to be the most populous area in the world according to the guinness book of records in the little area called shamshui po and it was densely populated to say the least and i was the only western inhabitant of that area as <laughs> so it was in every aspect quite a quite a challenge but quite a revelation to be perfectly honest so i'm really curious walk us through your journey in hong kong how long were you there for uh, uh did you start a studio like how did it come about what were you doing in hong kong well i mean knocking on doors um i mean literally i would start every day um the one great thing about phone calls in hong kong in those days were that they were free so you could walk into a bank or you know any other establishment and there would always be a phone sitting somewhere for you to use and we've got to remember this is pre-mobile phone, of course. We're so used to mobile phones in these days and even pre-pagers. Um, pagers came in, you know, after a few years, but this was literally, we just all existed on the old traditional phone format. Um, so I would go and call numerous companies that I felt might require photography, cold calling. And with my little folio that I'd gathered together from numerous shoots in the UK, um, I managed to find my way into certain offices not advertising companies because I knew I wasn't ready for that uh, my equipment and my folio just wasn't there at that particular point in time and I was very fortunate to get a retainer on a magazine and the magazine had just started and it was a, a social magazine um, called the Hong Kong Tattler and it, it covered social events but it also covered um, numerous dignitaries as well and so there would be the um, you know the businessman of the month and and you know the businesswoman of the month the club of the month um, the restaurant of the month and so it was a wonderful way of, of looking at Hong Kong life and and making contacts and that was the initial start for me and I was very fortunate to photograph some very famous people during that time so Run Run Shaw who ran Shaw Studios, who used to, you know, produce all the Kung Fu films. Um, and that in itself, photographing him was quite an experience. Um, and numerous other dignitaries throughout the territory. 
And then as, as I managed to meet numerous people, the contact started to grow and my folio started to grow. And then I was able to feel brave enough to go and knock on the doors of some of the design companies and advertising companies. And, and that, was where, that was where the fun began. How, how did you deal with the, uh, the language barrier? Uh, I'm assuming that you probably didn't know any uh, of the local language. Uh, how, how did you deal with that? Well, I, I, I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, being a school doesn't sound very colonial, but being a British colony, <laughs> it, you know, most people in certainly in business terms did speak English. Um, and I would I went for Cantonese lessons. And every time I try my Cantonese on the taxi drivers, they would just return you know the compliment in English and and so as much as I persisted <laughs> unfortunately it didn't get me very far but but I, I did at least learn a few words that I felt would be quite useful you know the the, the Cantonese language mm -hmm. is very colorful when it comes to um, swearing and and I won't divulge any of the any of the terms that I learned during that time. I was but, that, that's usually the very first thing that you learn when you go to a country that you have no. If you're learning a different language, that's the very first thing that you learn. Well, well, it was in this case because I, I knew I was going to be out and about, and and the local terms certainly for a Western person during that time was guaylo, and guaylo means ghost. And so we were all deemed to be ghosts to the local people. <laughs> and it wasn't a particularly polite term in those days. Now it's just a generic term that people use. But certainly back then, and we're talking late 70s, it was not a polite term. And Cantonese friends of mine were, were disgusted when they heard people call me a guaylo. Uh, but beyond that, I would then learn a few particularly colourful swear words in Cantonese and if I felt that somebody was using those against me or, or you know suggestively towards me I would then return the compliment at which point they would look particularly shocked <laughs> and that stood me in good stead on numerous occasions. Well good for you. You've had, you've had a long long sort of career tell us just uh, mention some of the countries that you've uh, visited or been to uh, as a photographer uh, working? Yeah, uh, well, to, to be honest, Bernie, I've been very fortunate. I, I um, you know, numerous countries, uh, I mean, uh, being based in Hong Kong, obviously, um, you know, with that being a center to most everything Asia, then I was fortunate to work in every Asian country um, from Singapore, Japan, um, China in the early days. China in the early days was very interesting because um, I was, I went into China in 1978 and was on probably, well, not probably one of the first tourist trips into China. And you could only go in there as a tourist in those days. There was no way you could go in as a photographer, uh, you know, so I went in as a tourist. I think a month after it reopened, I thought this was a wonderful opportunity to go in. And I, I got a trip to Shanghai. And, and that initial trip to Shanghai was fascinating. It was, but we were regimented and we had to, you know, go on a trip every day and we were guided to numerous different areas within Shanghai. The zoo, you know, was one. Mm -hmm. And I, I 
quietly said to our guide, I said, well, I, I really don't want to go to the zoo. That's not really what I'm here to photograph. I, I want to just walk off on my own and photograph the streets of Shanghai. And she got very nervous about this. And, and she said, I don't think that's a good idea. And I said, well, sorry, but I, I really want to go and photograph the real China. And I, I wandered off and was befriended no, you, by... You didn't actually get her permission. You just no, wandered off. Okay. No, I, I didn't get her permission. <laughs> I, I, she was not, unfortunately, she was definitely not going to give me permission. <laughs> and, and, and I've still got those images to this day. The Kodachromes are still sitting there, um, you know, and still very usable to this day. But those images of those first few days in China will always live with me, as will the experience. And the fact that when I got back to the hotel, I was told in no uncertain terms that I had been followed. Oh, wow. Every, every move that I had made had been documented and they weren't overly impressed. But we went in um, as a group that night, I remember after the first night, we went into the Peace Hotel, which was a a grand old hotel. I mean, it really was a wonderful 30s building. And we wandered in and literally on the door, it said, um, no Chinese allowed. And we walked into the bar and there was a jazz band in there with their Mao suits on, who had obviously been playing pre-revolution Glenn Miller music. And we sat there having our drinks in this rather decadent looking old ballroom with deflated balloons hanging from the ceiling, listening to this wonderful music being played by these, you know, mainland Chinese wonderful musicians in their mouth suits. And I've, again, got photographs of all of that. It was a, it was a wonderful time to document. It really was. Um, seeing China now, obviously, is a completely different story. But in those days, it was a fascinating country to photograph. So when you're traveling and you were photographing, who for? Was it companies, your commercial photographer? Um, who was, it, who it, was paying you? Yes, it was basically. a combination. Yes, well, it, it, it was a combination. Um, it, an opportunity like that, I felt, was worth grabbing. So that was actually not for anybody in particular. Um, at this point, I was becoming interested in photo libraries and, and putting my images into photo libraries um, and had already contacted a few photo libraries in the UK. Um, and so I felt there were opportunities there for the work to be used, but that particular job, um, well, it wasn't a job really, it was just a, you know, a whim and the thought that there would be interest in those photographs, much different from the mullied advertising jobs that I became involved in uh, latterly, which were, you know, best discussed over a long lunch as, <laughs> as many, many of the advertising <laughs> jobs were then, you know, and, and of course at the photographer's expense, you know, but something you could write off on the quote. So, um, you know, those were the lunches that rolled into dinner. <laughs> Tell us some of the companies you work for. Uh, now, I mean, so many. Um, my first overseas shoot um, for an advertising company was actually Toyota. Um, and that would have been in the early 80s. And we all went off to LA um, to photograph Toyota, um, along with uh, a TV production crew as well. So it was, it was quite often a case of film plus stills. Um, 
which was always a very frustrating experience because as a still photographer, unfortunately, you're at the end of a long line, you know, and particularly when it comes to lighting as well. I mean, you, you can watch everything going on with the TV production. And of course, you know, you can't even shoot alongside while they're filming. You are given occasionally, if you're lucky, a 15 minute slot at the end of the, you know, the film shoot to go and do what you can. And quite often by then the light's gone you know, because the, you know, obviously the uh, the film crew have had the best of the light, and so you have to make do with what you can. And um, you know, it that again was an experience. And working with art directors was, you know, um, more than an experience, and uh, that became very very challenging indeed. And uh, if any of you have experienced working with art directors, you will sympathise. Um, every art director I always felt was a a frustrated photographer and um you know <laughs> would uh, would sort of make life challenging to say the least but to be fair equally i learned a lot from some of those creatives as well um so it it, it um yeah it, it wasn't all negative but uh, we we had some challenging moments tell us tell us some more companies that you've worked with um i over the years i've, I've worked with Caterpillar was an interesting one. Um, and that was a very interesting project. Um, it was, uh, again, I was shooting alongside a, um, a film production crew and Caterpillar um, had decided to, uh, they were struggling in the market um, due to the Japanese competition, the Komatsu, et cetera, were coming in. And, you know, so Caterpillar decided, right, we're going to throw everything into a production and they involved Disney they they were really going for it. they have a trade show every seven years um, in the construction equipment industry at Vegas and they put everything into this mammoth production and uh, we traveled everywhere I, I went to Australia um, to shoot the uh, cat vehicles traveling through the desert in um, Mount Newman which was quite an experience in itself. Um, two days drive out of Perth and, uh, you know, as, as they say in Oz, you know, all you gotta do, mate, is put your, put your, put a brick on the accelerator and off you go. And so I did for, <laughs> I did for two days. And, and by the time we eventually turned left into Mount Newman, I hit that corner going into Mount Newman at a hundred K, you know, not realizing I'd been doing about a, 200k for two days solid with a navigator by the side of me saying watch the roo mate watch the roo <laughs> as the kangaroos were leaping in front of the car and and arriving at mount newman with my then um you know hasselblad which i had by then managed to afford um only to arrive and realize that unfortunately you know the iron ore um, was attracted to the camera equipment. <laughs> so, you know, that became quite hazardous in itself. And uh, um, unfortunately as well, um, you know, it, yeah, it, it just became a, a challenging scenario, but some wonderful images, some wonderful opportunities. Um, and uh, we just had to make sure that we were out of there at midday every day, because at midday they planted explosives and the whole mine shook and unfortunately they forgot to tell us on the first day and we were 
wandering around trying to get some interesting shots and you know did the earth move for you yes it did <laughs> and for the camera crew <laughs> and, for the as camera well. crew. and uh, sorry i was gonna say the reason i was pointing to that camera i was just actually just showing you one of the video cameras that i shot at my last uh, thing i just dug it out of my camera bag and sure enough because i was at an iron ore mine and this one is dead one it doesn't even turn on anymore so so I, I can sympathize with you taking your Hasselblad uh, and getting it uh, all covered in dust. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, you've you've met a lot of uh, famous people, I'm sure, in your travels. I think at one point, wasn't there a story about you meeting David Bailey? Yeah, that's quite an embarrassing story in itself, to be perfectly honest. It is. Um, <laughs> I, I was doing a shoot for the Peninsula Hotel, um, which is a, a group based in Hong Kong and they have numerous hotels around the world. And um, it was a wonderful project. We were spending 10 days in each location and uh, they'd even sent me, well, I'd insisted to be perfectly on, on, a, on a recce even before the shoot. So I'd gone on this little world trip to all the Peninsula hotels, which I have wow. to say are fairly, are fairly pleasant hotels to stay in. So I'd <laughs> gone on a, you know, it wasn't a struggle. You know, I'd gone um, wrecking all these wonderful hotels on my own, you know, checking on lighting, you know, meeting with the PR people, checking on talent, etc. And when it came to the actual shoot, we arrived at the airport in LA and it was wonderful. I mean, they, they knew how to treat people in LA, in LA and, the stretch limo arrived and, um, at the airport and we we all looked around at each other thinking is this really for us <laughs> you know and it was and they they yeah they looked after us and we all got into the stretch limo arrived at the uh, at the hotel and they treated us like stars it was wonderful but on day one we set all the lighting up and funnily enough i'd purchased some new lighting for the job and it was um i had decided to experiment a little bit with hmi and this was when uh, everybody was still using flash and I decided to use HMIs for this particular job because I'd done a lot of research on, on lights and, um, and felt that HMIs were going to give me some wonderful spread um, that the flash probably wouldn't and would be more conducive to shooting large areas in a hotel. So I had purchased two HMIs and I was and actually in the States and I picked them up in the States and was experimenting with them. Um, Bron color HMIs and they were wonderful lights with some big square boxes and, um, and this character came along and was looking quizzically at these lights. And my assistant, young Chinese lad, who was a lovely guy who stayed with me for many years, said to me, um, have you noticed that strange guy over there? He keeps looking at us and uh, quizzically looking at, at the, uh, you know, the lighting. And I said, yeah, but I said, there's some strange people in LA, just ignore him, you know, it's, you know, um, I, I'm sure he'll, he'll go away eventually. And we sort of carry on doing our work and um, we got the test results back and, and we were quite happy with the way the lighting was working. And the second day, again, we set up our lights in another area and, and, he came back again this you know small character sort of came by and was looking quizzically at the lights again and and normally I would be quite receptive to this sort of situation I'd say hi how are you and you know but there was just something that that appeared a little unusual with him and it was the way he was looking at the equipment and and I just said to, again to my assistant look I, you know I think we'll just we'll just let him you know sort of quietly wander off and and he did and the following day we were sitting down at lunch and unfortunately, we had to eat in, you know, their 
wonderful restaurants, of course, in the hotel, <laughs> um, which became our canteen. And we were sitting in a booth and the booth behind, this particular person was sitting in the booth. And I couldn't help but overhear the conversation. And there was a film director talking to this individual that we've been looking at. And he said, well, David, he said, um, you know, what are we going to call this film? Are we just going to call it David Bailey's Adventures? And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God. So, no, I, you know, I thought yeah, for two days, I have been ignoring David Bailey, who has been quizzically looking at our lights. And I thought, what a lost opportunity. And, and as he stood up to leave, I, I stood up and I said, I, said I, I have to apologize. I had no idea it was you. And he said, oh, he said, that's fine, mate. He said, that's okay. He said, um, I said, I'd love to sit down. He said, yeah, I would love to have a drink with you too, mate. But he said, I'm, I'm just heading off to the airport. I'm just going home now. <laughs> so that was my lost opportunity of spending time with David Bailey. Uh, but anyway, you know, it was, it was, uh, the, the shoot itself went off well. And, um, and I used HMI lights for many years to come because they became my mainstay, uh, lighting-wise, and latterly became everybody's mainstay. And I, you know, I felt that they were a wonderful tool for any photographer at that particular time. So, uh, what other uh, famous people uh, didn't you meet as well? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was. I was very fortunate to um, one of my first jobs. This goes back to the UK. Um, was actually photographing. Uh, um, Keith Moon um, of the from Who, the Who, from yeah. the Who, yeah, and Keith Moon, you know, as we know, had a bit of a reputation to say the least, and um, you know, my my dear employees, you know, my the two partners, always would say to me, one of our clients was Premier Drum, and they were the foremost drum kits in that particular era, you know, in the seventies every rock band used premier drum and because i was the youngest in the company they always used to say you go along and photograph you know these particular rock band and it was phil collins it was everybody you know i was very fortunate very fortunate so one day they said we've got this you know individual that premier i want you to go and photograph a guy called keith moon <laughs> so i said oh well, yeah i think i can you know sort of manage that so i i went down and it wasn't while he was performing it was during the afternoon and I went into this cavernous hall where the Who were performing that night. And there were just the two of us, Keith Moon and myself. And I sort of clambered up onto the stage rather nervously. And he could obviously sort of tell I was a bit apprehensive, you know, and he was so nice. I mean, he was, he was great. He, he, he said, you know, what would you like, mate? Would you like a bit of this? And I'll get, yeah, yeah. I said, that's, that's great. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. And he, I was there for about, you know, half an hour and he was so helpful. He obviously appreciated, I was a young budding photographer and uh, was very gracious. And uh, we ended up with some, you know, some interesting shots. So uh, that was certainly one of my initial um, sort of brushes with fame. We, we used to photograph um, Jackie Chan a lot in Hong Kong. Um, we photographed all of his international film posters and, and again working with Jackie Chan was a dream. I mean he, he was fascinated in photography and um, 
and we even talked about setting up a studio together at one point. And, and again, he was a wonderful character to photograph. I, th I think we as photographers, you know, I, I mean, we're, we're very privileged. Um, we quite often do get to photograph some, you know, fascinating characters in our lives. And, um, you know, I've certainly been fortunate to, you know, to photograph a few. Um, one of the more interesting ones was uh, the, um, the president of the Philippines, uh, President Estrada. And again, yeah, the protocol that we had to go through when we went to the Philippines to photograph President Estrada was, was fascinating. Um, unfortunately, he, he was renowned. He was an actor before he was a president, as, as numerous you know, other presidents have been. And, um, and when, we, uh, when we got to the, um, the, the, the palace in, in Manila, um, we were informed that um, you know, the shoot wouldn't be happening until the evening. Um, unfortunately, President Estrada doesn't get up until the afternoon. So we, we sort of hung around having, you know, pizza in the palace. And, um, and you know, and, and eventually at about eight o'clock at night, we were informed that, um, you know, the president was basically going to be coming forward for his, um, you know, for his much long awaited portrait. And uh, we got everything set up with the flag and, and the, you know, and, and the president wandered in and we, we sort of took the first few shots and it was in the days of Polaroid. So we showed him the Polaroid and he looked at it in disgust and wandered off. And I thought, oh no, what now? And he had an aide who was also a film director who was also his makeup artist. And he said to me, don't worry, he'll be back. He's, he's acting. <laughs> so we waited, we waited patiently. And sure enough, in 10 minutes, the, he came back and was all smiles and, you know, was the perfect talent, to be perfectly honest. And we got some great shots of, of President Estrada. Um, and, you know, he, he even, you know, sort of signed a, a photograph for us as we left, signed a Polaroid and, and we wandered out of the palace. So, um, but uh, yeah, there've been numerous people along the way and um, numerous footballers who um, I was privy to photograph when I was back in England. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just think too many, too many, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking through a list at the moment here of all the different people. Um, but I, as mentioned, I just think that we, you know, we as photographers, we should never take it for granted that, um, you know, we quite often find ourselves in privileged positions, whether it be um, as with the job I've just photographed. I mean, um, you know, two days ago, I was photographing Peter Burling and who has just won the America's Cup. And he is the skipper of the, um, you know, the Team New Zealand boat. And I found myself momentarily because they were you know moving the actual cup itself from a to b we this the two of us were on the docks together all the other photographers were elsewhere and there were just the two of us on the dock and what a golden opportunity again you know so um you just grab those opportunities i think we all learn to do that in our lives uh, there have been you know certainly as photographers you appreciate that's something that you have to grab when an opportunity presents itself take it because and that comes from my early schooling with the two press photographers um and i think the early days of my working 
for the national papers in the UK as well. Um, and back to wedding photography as well. You know, I mean, that groundwork that we are fortunate to go through, some of us anyway, in the early days, um, stays with you forever. And, uh, you know, it, it never leaves you um, once you've got that passion. And I, I feel very fortunate um, to have retained that passion as well. I, I, I something that throughout my career, um, I have never lost. I think there was a period when I was probably doing too much advertising work. Um, and uh, it was at a time when I was leaving Hong Kong and uh, I decided that I was going to sort of take a, a different direction, but my passion for photography has stayed with me and I hopefully will always stay with me. And I, the word retire doesn't really ever come into my vocabulary. Um, I, I really don't know the word and, you know, I just get excited every time I look in the back of a camera. Uh, you know, again, this past week has been, you know, uh, another example of that, just not quite knowing always what you've got, particularly when you're photographing these unbelievable sailing boats that are, you know, are, are sort of sailing past you at 50 miles an hour. I mean, that is speed. That, and when you're on a boat, which is equally rocking up and down on the harbour, you know, that's, that, that was a new challenge for me. And, uh, you know, at, at my stage in my profession, um, a, a wonderful challenge to be presented with. And, and you know, I'm very fortunate that every day presents a new challenge and still does. So I feel Absolutely. very lucky to have had a career as a photographer. Seems like you've had a, such an illustrious career and it's such a fun career. And uh, uh, it, it's so fun to see you still seem to have the same passion that uh, when you started. So it's great that uh, you still have that. And I love uh, seeing that we we can just sit here and listen to your stories all day long. But I see that uh, Bernie's uh, probably uh, prodding at me that he's got his uh, TF time uh, coming up soon. So <laughs> it, it's coming towards the, uh, the end of the podcast. And uh, this is the section where uh, we actually put you in a hot seat. So um, we got a bunch of questions that Bernie's going to fire off to you. One word uh, answer. So Bernie, uh, why don't you explain the little um, uh, challenge, uh, rapid fire questions uh, for Neil? Yeah, well, to uh, sort of uh, lighten uh, the uh, podcast where you've just put together these uh, 10 questions, which are actually 13, not to confuse you, but uh, the, the name of the game, uh, Neil, is to uh, answer with one word. And if you can manage to do that through all these 10, which are actually 13 questions, <laughs> um, there is a prize involved, which is, you know, much more valuable than the America's Cup. It's a trip to... Uh, Texas uh, at the end of the year and to attend uh, my clients uh, retreats um, all of the clients from all around the world are coming together in Texas in Lockhart which is the uh, center of the barbecue industry and we're all gonna just eat and drink and be merry and uh, you'll get a free trip there from wherever you are in the world. I, I, I wish I'd had a little bit of forewarning for this. I mean, I, I oh, no, it's okay. No, no pressure. I don't want to put you under pressure. Um, and Hark is actually going to pay uh, out of his own 
<laughs> out of his own money for this trip, all expenses paid. So far so, for me, none of none of the guests have worked out. None of the guests. Thank God for me. Well, barbecue. Well, barbecues are something which I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm particularly uh, interested in. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I have I have some clients in Texas, and they they're organizing this. So, here we go. Quick fire ten. What's your favorite alcoholic drink? Whiskey. What animal are you afraid of? Alligator. What's your favorite city in the world? Hong Kong. What sport do you play? Tennis. If you could have dinner with one person, living or dead in the world, who would it be? Sir Edmund Hillary. What's your favorite movie? Um, um, Sorry, just give me two seconds. Oh. No, sorry. The time's out. You failed. Sorry to okay. win the prize. Uh, Favorite camera you've ever owned? Leica. Would you like to relive your life? Yes or no? Yes. What's your favorite food? Curry. What are you allergic to? Spiders. <laughs> Who would you be if you weren't you? Um, David Bowie. If you hadn't been a photographer, what would you like to have been? Film director. Uh, what's your motivation to get you out of bed every morning? Photography. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, Neil, that's been amazing. We've gone from the swinging 60s with David Bailey all the way through to you photographing the America's Cup. Uh, you've had, as Hawk said, an amazing, illustrious career, which isn't over yet. And uh, this podcast is called Photographer's Stories, subtitled Homage to the Professional Photographer. And we do that to you. Hawk and I pay homage to you. You're incredible. You're an inspiration. And we're so grateful to have had you and privileged to have you and chat to you for this one hour and Hawk and I want to spend a lot more time with you. And unfortunately, it's not going to be in Texas. But <laughs> I, I just, I just, I just blanked out when it came to yeah. film. It's funny, you Thank know. I'm starting to sweat. I'm starting to sweat. Hawk is a lot more nervous at that point, believe oh, me. Man. So, Hawk, I'll hand, hand over to you to just uh, close this episode down. And thank you again so much, Neil. <laughs> Thanks, Bernie. Okay, thank uh, you. Neil, it, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. It's such a great story. So I loved hearing uh, of all your uh, adventures uh, out in the uh, east uh, end of the planet. So um, thank you very much. Uh, is there any place that you would love uh, to direct our listeners to where they can see most of your work, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or any other website that you want to shout out? Um, well, I'm just starting a new um, a new website actually at the moment. Um, but the the current one is um, imagework.tv, um, but that is only good for a short period of time. Uh, when I get back to the UK, literally as we speak, we've got a new website under construction, um, which is going to be a very different website from the one that is currently up and available, and that will be in my own name. Um, but so. The image work website will only be relevant for a short period of time. Um, but, uh, you know, so the, new, yes, that, the, that, that, the new domain will be neilferron.com or something else? Yes, yes, okay. it will. Yes, Great. yes, yeah. 
That's awesome. Uh, thank you very much again. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, meet with us. I hope you had a great time at the America's Cup, and I look forward to seeing some of those images uh, in the news. Uh, I got to look them up right now. So. Okay. Thank, thank you. you very much. Take care. Thanks both. Thank you very much. It's okay. been a pleasure. Thank Bye you. All.